Welcome to the Husband Material Podcast, where we help Christian men outgrow porn. Why? So you can change your brain, heal your heart, and save your relationship. My name is Drew Boa, and I'm here to show you how. Let's go. Today, we have Dr. Doug Carpenter, founder with his wife of Insight Counseling Services in Michigan, and the author of Childhood Trauma and the Non-Alpha Male, which is awesome. I got to read this book. Doug, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure of mine to be here. I have to tell you how much your book has helped me this week. Well, I'm excited to hear about that. (laughs) Please tell me. (laughs) Yeah. So today we are talking about masculinity. And I had a masculinity moment. It was yesterday, actually, that I was texting with a few of the guys from my church. He said, uh, gentlemen, hoping to do a men's outdoor movie night this Friday. The movie must be a vintage classic men's movie. Dirty Dozen, Kelly's Heroes, Apocalypse Now, Deer Hunter. And I thought to myself, that does not sound very fun. (laughs) I agree. I'm like, pass. And then one of the guys said, What about Princess Diaries? (laughs) Or Little Women? Oh, wow. Or Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. And he was clearly joking. Right. I mean, he was was sarcastic. I felt a little bit of shame because I love those movies. Right, right. Princess Diaries is hilarious. Hilarious. Little Women is a great story. Great. I don't like Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants as much. Right. For me, this was the first time in my life where something like this has happened and I was able to identify some of the shaming scripts of masculinity that were going on in this conversation. Yes. And to say, no, I don't want to go to that movie night. It's not for me. And not to feel guilty or like I'm any less of a man or like I should go, I should want to go, right? I, right? I should like these men's movies. I should get into it. And I was just shooting all over myself. Right. Well, it reminds me of the story that I wrote in the book about myself that while I was in process of writing the book, I'm on a field trip with my son and his whole class. And this other dad walks up to me and says, hey, what's your favorite football team? And I just say, I hate football. <laughs> and so then he, he like, well, what about hockey? Well, I, I'm not really a big sports fan. If I do like sports, I kind of like tennis. And he asked me something about cars because we live in Detroit. So everybody knows about cars, right? And I'm just like, well, I don't really have an opinion about that. And he just turned around and walked off. I'm like, you literally cannot hold a conversation with me if it's not about sports sports players or cars. And I just stood there so dumbfounded. (laughs) Like, where is your human condition? Like, can you not just have a conversation about like how much fun our kids are having? You know, you have to resort to one of these traditionally stereotypical masculine conversations. So I totally relate to to your moment there about like with the movie. Yeah, it's a masculinity moment. And now you've given me new language and the ability to have these masculinity moments where I can be confident in my masculinity without having to fit in with those other guys. Right, right. There's no need to become somebody that you're not. 
yes. to try to, to fit in. You know, exactly. this whole masculinity thing is much broader than we've been taught as children. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole concept of masculinity has been such a narrow concept. You know, and that's part of what my book tries to address is that if if you don't fit into one of these dichotomous, you know, it's it's very dichotomous. You're either traditionally stereotypic masculine, you have to like sports, you have to be into cars, you have to blah, 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 like hunting, fishing, whatever. War movies. You know? Right. Or you're probably gay, you know? So it's like, and and or you're a beta, or you know, you have all these gender role conflict type issues Mm -hmm. about you. And it is so not dichotomous. You know, masculinity falls along a continuum. And even the continuum that I think most people try to use, and I know this is a a, a nasty, bad word in the culture right now, but most of that continuum is a toxic masculinity continuum, not a healthy masculinity continuum. And so that's another place where we've got to, we've got to adjust our mindset about our definition of masculinity. And that is why we are here today because so many of us struggle with masculinity and you've introduced this new concept to me of gender role conflict. Yeah. Okay. So gender role conflict, let's take that term and treat it like an umbrella. It's, it's, more than provide a definition, I want you to think of gender role conflict as more of an experience. It's something that you're going to experience as a man. Even if you're a traditionally masculine man, there are times that you may experience gender role conflict. And this gender role conflicts come out of some research by Jim O'Neill um, and out of his book, uh, Men's Gender Role Conflict, which came out of several years ago. But we experience general conflict in three different ways. Number one is by devaluations. So these are gender role devaluations that are negative critiques of either ourselves or of others mm-hmm. um, when we're trying to conform to the stereotypic masculine way. So basically, you're not doing it good enough. Mm-hmm. So you attack yourself or someone else attacks you like, oh, God, you throw the football like a girl. Yeah, You know, some of those things that men say to one another, or that you truly are doing something that's kind of deviating from the stereotypic masculine traditions that we hold. Um, So you can be devalued. Number two, you can have restrictions. So that's gender role constrictions occur when confining others or yourself to the masculine ideology. Like, you want to be more expressive. I want to cry at this funeral. Mm. I want to shed a tear at this wedding. Whatever it is, but you constrict yourself because that doesn't fit your norm. So there you're in a gender role conflict. And you don't want to be ridiculed or made fun of by by other men or looked down on like you're less masculine. And that was me at this movie night. Right. You were experiencing a lot of gender role conflict restriction there. You were yeah. being expected to like right. the dirty dozen or fight club or, right. you know, whatever super mas- masculine <laughs> yeah. movies they were wanting to <laughs> wanting to throw out there, you know, and, and then the third area 
is so we've got devaluations, restrictions, and then violations. And those happen mm-hmm. when we either shame ourselves or others shame us, or we shame other people yeah. for actually violating one of those masculine norms that we've been taught. Yeah. Yeah. So gender role conflict is more of an experience, mm-hmm. something that you experience as a man because you're not fitting this yeah. narrow stereotypic definition right. that society has forced on us. Yes. And actually goes against the very nature of our brains. I mean, yes, we are male, our brains and our hormones are, are formed in our maleness, and we have certain ways that we think because of our maleness. But yet, both men and women have a, a limbic system. Our limbic system is responsible for all kinds of emotion. Our, every limbic system has an amygdala. Amygdalas are responsible for intense emotion. So we're all capable of experiencing intense love and intense intimacy, you know, all kinds of intensity in our emotions. But what does society tell men about men and emotions? Mm, you're a sissy if you are going to be all emotional about something. Rather than you're a human. Right. So let, let's go back in time for a little bit. If we go back to like the 70s. So the research that I did in the book about the concepts of masculinity probably went back to the early 70s. In the early 70s, one of the very first studies that was done on the concept of masculinity was done by David and Brannon, and they identified four standards of the traditional male back in the 70s. And these were no sissy stuff, so you have to distance yourself from anything uh, uh, that has to do with femininity and avoid emotions, be a big wheel, meaning that you have to strive for achievement or success and focus on competition, be a sturdy oak, which meant to avoid vulnerability, stay composed and stay in control and be tough. And number four was give them hell, meaning act aggressively and be dominant. Yeah. And so that's what it was like in the seventies. Let's jump 20 years later into the nineties when Ronald Levant, who was a famous psychologist, still is a famous psychologist. He's been president of this American Psychological Association before and has has done a lot of great work in the psychology of men, he tried to identify in the 90s what are the principles for traditional masculinity. And he came up with seven areas. And those are number one, restrict emotions. Number two, avoid being feminine. Number three, focus on toughness and aggression. Number four, be self-reliant. Number five, make achievements the top priority. Number six, be non-relational and objectify sex. Wow. And number seven, be homophobic. Now, I think it's very interesting that number six, 20 years later from the 70s, was added that we objectify sex. Because if you look at that in the time frame of when pornography was gaining such a, a huge ground, it was in the 80s and 90s. And so it was very fertile ground for men to start objectifying sex even more because pornography was becoming so much more available to men. And these concepts just continued to push us into a more confined frame. You know, you would hope that over 20 years that we as a species of of maleness would have evolved into something more healthy. But over 20 years, 
we didn't. We actually became worse from, and, from the four things to these seven things. And it sounds like porn played a big role in that. Well, definitely with certain areas of, of objectifying women and, yeah. um, and moving us further away from intimacy. Mm. Because sex and intimacy are very different. But for a lot of men, sex equals intimacy. But that's yeah. not the case. Yeah. You know, when men come to see me because of a sexual addiction and often pornography addiction, sometimes I will even tell them, you don't have a sex addiction. You, you have an intimacy problem. Mm-hmm. You turn to sex and pornography because you're too afraid to make yourself vulnerable enough to have an intimate connection that would yeah. lead to sexual fulfillment yeah. for you. So yeah. you keep intimacy at a distance by objectifying sex. Yeah, that's profound. And I see that in myself. I see that in some of the guys I work with when we're even afraid of intimacy with each other, afraid to, well, that's even worse. Yeah. I mean, you, men will take the chance and the risk to become intimate with a woman. In fact, if you look at research, if you want to know something from, if you're a woman and you want to really get a piece of information out of a guy, you ask him right after orgasm. When you're laying there and you're both in that rosy glow, that's when he's most vulnerable and most likely to tell you the truth if you ask a question. Wow. Because you're connecting intimately mm. in that moment. And so guys will take the risk to become intimate with a woman because we want the orgasm. And so then that ends up getting to experience intimacy. But you mentioned intimacy with a, a, another guy and guys are like, I'm not, I'm no homo. I'm not, I'm not mm-hmm. going to do that. I'm not going to, Yeah, uh, I don't have intimacy with guys, you know, because again, men have a very narrow definition of what intimacy really means. Yeah. And it feels like a risk. Like, is this yeah. a manly thing to do? to put myself out there and potentially start a friendship or to reach out for somebody for help when I'm sexually triggered. It feels like potentially I'm exposing my masculinity to ridicule or feel like less of a man. Yes. Because men move further and further away from if we smell vulnerability, (laughs) (laughs) you know, if you even hint of vulnerability. You change your behavior. You just do something different. You move away from it. But that's what I think the value is of programs like yours. It's pulling men together to share intimacy, to allow yourself to be vulnerable with other men and it be okay. I mean, aren't those really biblical principles? They are. And even though that's true, it feels like a departure from what people talk about when they talk about biblical masculinity and even the pressure coming from within the church of, uh, you know, what, what do the men's ministries usually revolve around? And I've well, talked we, about are this. Are we going to fashion our masculine identity in the church after Samson or Esau, mm. or are we going to fashion it after Jesus? <laughs> yeah, let's go. Right? <laughs> Jesus was yeah. compassionate. He let the woman at the well, or the 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 lady found in the um, the act of adultery. He let her go. He was compassionate. He called the little children unto him. He was tender. 
he was tender, but yet he he is the perfect human that we Let's should think about this. Lives after he was a single man into his thirties when yes. there was even more pressure to get married than now. Yes, he didn't own a home. He didn't and have a job. Twelve other dudes. <laughs> <laughs> right. This dude is homeless and he's sleeping with men. Well, dudes, yeah. <laughs> At least in the same room, same right. outdoor space. Right. And he is fully human and he's our oh. clearest picture of masculinity. He's, he's our prototype. Amen. You know, that whole what would Jesus do movement, you know, we can all joke about that. But there's, there's really some goodness yeah. that could come out of that. You know, that's really... Like how I say to men all the time, you need to strive for the human condition, not a gender condition. That's good. Your maleness is about, is about who you are, not what you do, Come not on. what you can do. It's about who you are. It's about what are my value systems going to be? At my 80th birthday party, when they're roasting me, are they going to get up and say, Doug was a real stud? No, no. I hope to God someone gets up and says he was one of the most passionate, compassionate, kind, generous individuals that I've I've ever met. And he was always kind to me. You know, I don't want stand up somebody to stand up there and said, you know, he slept with three hundred women. That's not a value in life. You know, men have to figure out what are my values and live according to that. That's how you be a true man. You develop your human condition, which Jesus was the epitome of that human condition. He was tempted in all ways, right? And so he understands our human condition, but yet he Mm -hmm. exhibited kindness, but he also exhibited anger, Mm -hmm. right? He didn't have a narrow path. He was in touch with all his emotions and expressed those accordingly. When yeah. the time was right. That's right. And he knew intimacy without orgasm. Very much so. Orgasm has, does not have anything to do with true intimacy. That's just the things that we've learned to equate together, like peanut butter and jelly mm-hmm. or steak and A1 for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. but, you know, we as men <laughs> experience intimacy as sex and orgasm. And then we, because we allow ourselves to become vulnerable. So what I hear you saying is we need to learn how to broaden our definition of masculinity to include things like emotions and tenderness and close relationships. And that when we find ourselves feeling pressure to conform to a certain type of masculinity, whether that's the church's biblical version or the culture's version, we get into this gender role conflict. Absolutely. Well, I, you know, I'm a big proponent of inner child work. And if we all take a moment and look at our inner child, what do they need? I sit with men because I mostly see men for therapy, probably about 80% of my clientele are men. So uh, about 45 hours of my week, uh, you know, 80% of that is spent with men working on trauma and issues. None of their little children need to crap beat out of them, 
need to be made fun of by another guy, um, need to be punched in the arm and told to suck it up. No, the wounded little boys within us all cry out for compassion, connection, love, intimacy, support. You know, so that's one way to think about what are your values as well? Like, what does the child within you need? Mm -hmm. Those are the characteristics that you want to develop. Because from an adult mindset, you can look at a child and figure out what they need. They need pieces of the human condition, not a gender condition. You know, when I was raising my son, who my son... Oh my gosh. He is the epitome of an alpha male. I don't know how I did this because I am so not an alpha male, but this kid hunts fish. He kill, he'll kill anything that moves. Okay. So he, he is like alpha male to the max, but when he was little and he would start to cry about something, I would pick him up and I would sit him in my lap and I would say, Dawson, it's okay to cry. I know your foot hurts right now because you twisted your ankle. I want you to sit on dad's lap and I just want you to cry until you're done and it stops hurting. And I comforted him. You know, I didn't say, suck it up, be a man. Boys don't cry. Move on, pull yourself together. You know, I allowed him to have his emotions. And because I took that route, I think I have done by God's grace an amazing job of turning out a a 21 year old man right now. Who's at a very responsible, strong Christian leader, smart young man, who's very in touch with his masculine side, but yet is also very in touch with his emotional side. Because I also taught him a lot about how to treat other people and to never bully anyone and support all humans in their quest for whoever they're going to be. Yeah. And we're going to have to do another episode on bullying because that is a huge topic. Um, Huge. First of all, I love how you own your excellence as a father. That's something that I want to do too. That communicates a certain amount of confidence. Yes. I strongly try to be to my kids the kind of father that I needed. Mm Mm-hmm and didn't react to my own trauma. Let's talk about that. So how did you experience childhood trauma and gender role conflict as a boy? Well, it was pretty severe, and that's what drove me to write this book. (laughs) Um, My father, and I did not know this for many, many years, um, my father was um, physically and emotionally abused by his father. And starting from the age of five, my dad was put to work and had to work until he turned 13 and got paper routes um, and started working on his own simply to escape his father. So my dad grew up thinking, when I have kids, I am just going to let them play. That's, that's all I want is to be left alone and play. So when he had us kids, that's exactly what he did. He left us alone to, and let us play. But in that, he completely ignored us. He had nothing to do with us. He made no connection with us. He was a great provider. I couldn't ask for better when it comes to a man that worked hard, came home at night, was at the dinner table, but 
there was no connection. So I grew up in a very traumatic way, constantly thinking, why does this man not love me? I'm his Mm -hmm. flesh and blood and I'm hurting so bad. And my mother tried to overcompensate for his lack of involvement. I was raised with a sister. So I grew up, I had two favorite toys, Hot Wheels and Barbie dolls. That doesn't make a very good combination for a boy. Sounds like gender role <laughs> conflict in the works. And so then in the first grade, for whatever reason, my mom decided that uh, I probably shouldn't let him play with Barbie dolls anymore. So I woke up one Saturday morning and all my Barbie dolls were gone. And I asked her where they were. And she said, I gave them away. The thing she didn't think about was she gave them to a little girl down the street who had two older brothers who went to school and told everybody Mm. that I played with Barbie dolls Mm. and their little sister that I got them all taken away and they were all given to their little sister. So I became the laughing stock among all the boys and I was horribly bullied for years for, and called every name under the book, sissy faggot, you know, the P word, you know, anything feminized that you could imagine was very ostracized by boys. Um, So I lived a lot of my, my life in elementary and junior high school kind of alone. So I had very few friends at school and then I went home and I had a dad who didn't pay attention to me. And it was very traumatic for me. It caused a lot of um, sexual identity confusion in my teens. Like, I felt almost very asexual. Like I knew I was very different from boys. Um, It actually, my kindergarten teacher called my mom and called her in for a conference and asked her if I was gay. And my mom, my mom, that was in 1975, probably. I was in kindergarten and my mom was just dumbfounded. because I wouldn't play with the boys. I would either play with the girls or I would play by myself. I don't remember exactly where I was going with that. And then, you know, in junior high, I, I spent a lot of time alone. Um, in high school, things kind of started to turn around for me. I, I made really good friends with two of the girls that were in the popular club because we were working in the guidance office together. And they kind of sucked me into that group. And then some of the guys kind of accepted me. And so my later high school years were much better. But, you know, through that, oh, I know what I was saying is I felt very asexual because I didn't fit the the male gender stereotypic guy. Right. And I always felt like girls are never going to be attracted to me because I don't fit this male role. So I'll probably never get married. I'll probably never get to have kids. I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. Mm. You know, and I remember that that turned around for me one night in college when my college roommate, his name was John and John was very masculine, definitely an alpha male And he was on the court playing basketball and I was sitting with the girls in the bleachers watching John play basketball. And the girls were talking about how cute John was and all this. And the hottest girl in the group turned to the rest of the girls and said, you know what though? You date guys like John, but you marry a dog. (laughs) (laughs) And my heart leaped 
inside of me. Yeah. Like it was the first time that I think I really saw myself Mm -hmm. as potential marriage material and that a chick, a girl. Husband material. (laughs) Yeah. Husband material. (laughs) would look at me in a healthy way and want me to be their husband and the father of their children. And that moment was pivotal, pivotal, pivotal for me to begin to see myself as available and potentially wanted. And so I think in some ways that statement was so profound for me that that started me on my own masculine journey. Like, where am I going to take this? What kind of husband am I going to be? What kind of father am I going to be? I don't have to be John out on the basketball court. I can be Doug who reads books and writes books and is more of an intellectual. And I've played the piano since I was a very young kid. You know, I have musical talents and artistic talents and, you know, all those non-gender role things. <laughs> right. But those can, you can be just as masculine in that because, again, I can't stress this enough. We're striving for the human condition, not a gender condition. Every time you say it, it just sinks a little deeper. And I hear so much hope in what you're saying because there's so much more space. There's so much more room within true masculinity than we've imagined. Right. Well, and, and I wanted to write this book because I know the torture that I lived through as a little boy. And I know that there are other men who went through that as well. But I also wrote it for parents to learn how to raise boys in a way that doesn't lead to toxic masculinity, but leads to a healthy human condition. And it was so heartbreaking to hear you talk about your mother throwing away your beloved dolls. Oh, I I was devastated. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I had two loves. I loved my Hot Wheels. I did. But I also loved my Barbies and I would play with them probably equally. And And I didn't know at that point, like, I shouldn't be doing that. Like, I'd never been told. My sister never told me, boys don't play with Barbie dolls. My mom never even told me that. She bought them for me. I had my own. I didn't know there was a thing wrong with it until I woke up that day and they were gone. And then she said, well, boys don't really play with Barbie dolls. And I was just like, was somebody going to let me in on this secret? (laughs) Like, (laughs) yeah, it just turned my little tiny world kind of upside down. And then your dad wasn't there. Yeah. He never said anything to me. Like he, he never even like said, Oh, you're a sissy. Are you, I mean, my dad was kind to me, he just didn't have any connection with me. You know, and he so wasn't yeah. cruel to me, he wasn't abusive. He was just neglectful. And, and thank God that I had the opportunity to make amends with him. You know, when I was in my 20s, he somehow came to his senses about what he had done. And he came and got me and took me to lunch and said, I realize that I have made a huge mistake with you. And said, you know, told me about how his father was, which I knew my grandfather was a cruel man because he did some cruel things to me too. But, you know, I could tell you about, but we don't have time for that. So I knew my grandfather wasn't really an upstanding, great citizen. 
But my dad expressed the environment that he grew up in and why he chose to just let me play and be a kid. Because he didn't want me to feel that kind of pressure and oppression that he felt. But I totally misinterpreted that from a child's mind in a completely different way. Hmm. And my dad asked me that day, will you please work on building a relationship with me? Because at that point, I hated him. I didn't want anything to do with him. I didn't talk to him. I had very little to do with him. You know, that hit me like a ton of bricks that day. I was like, this man does love me? Like, I believe for 22 years that this man wished I would just vaporize, you know, right in front of him. (laughs) And I came to realize in that moment that this man loves me and that he was reacting out of his own pain. And here I am going to school to be a shrink. Like, how can I not express compassion and accept him? Mm -hmm. You know, and I told my dad in that moment, dad, that's all I've ever wanted from you. And so from the age of 22 to now, my dad and I have grown in our relationship. We're very close. You know, I cherish every minute I get to spend with him. And I, I found healing in that relationship. But that really came about because my dad came to his own level of awareness. You know, many men don't get that opportunity. You know, and I think that was also very healing for my masculinity, too. Yeah. And you talk about that in the book, this concept of father hunger. Yes. How does that play a role? You know, so many men, um, we have father absence. We have fathers that aren't there, fathers that work way too much or travel or distant or your parents are divorced. So you have father absence. You have father, we all have a sense of father hunger. We all, as boys, have a desire to connect with another male who will guide us, direct us, teach us. But when you don't have a father or a father image or a mentor, that hunger is never filled. It just continues to grow. And eventually, that can turn into a father wound. You know, if if your father doesn't connect with you because he's abusive to you, physically, sexually, neglects you, you know, that turns into a father wound. And it just Mm -hmm. makes that longing of that father hunger to connect with another guy so strong, you know, that I believe that in all the years, the 25 years that I've been doing psychotherapy with men, Any man that comes in that has SSA issues, same-sex attraction, I can almost guarantee that underneath it all, they're dealing with a father hunger issue. But when we get to puberty and we figure out we can masturbate, unfortunately, our sexual minds sexualize everything. Sex relieves me when I'm angry. It helps me celebrate when I'm happy. Mm. It takes care of when I'm bored, we kind of start to use this thing that's attached to our body as our own lever for dopamine. (laughs) So whatever emotion I'm experiencing, it has an outlet between my legs. Oh, absolutely. And it's not like a slot machine. It wins every time. Mm -hmm. And so our minds start to sexualize all those needs. And if you have that father hunger, that also becomes sexualized. Well, How can I get this need met? Well, if I give a guy something sexual, he'll probably meet my emotional need. Mm. And that gets all confused. 
in that whole masculinity issue that that child already has. Makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. And I'm not saying that homosexuality is caused caused by not having a dad. I am not saying that. I want to make that very, very clear. Mm -hmm. I think there's a percentage of people who are homosexual that father hunger probably played a significant role in that development. Yeah, and it's a contributor. It is a a contributor. Exactly. And another contributor you talked about was how your mother overcompensated for his absence. Yes, which, you know, there's kind of a, every time I say this word to a, a client who was enmeshed with their mother, they cringe, but enmeshment with your mother is, is emotional incest, mm-hmm. basically, because your mother begins to rely on you as her husband. She overshares information. You end up feeling emotionally responsible for her. You become the little man of the house because dad's always gone traveling or they're divorced now or dad's emotionally unavailable. He's an alcoholic. You know, so mom's not getting her emotional needs met. So she gets them met through you. You know, mom may try to overprotect you. A helicopter parent, you know, oversatiate you with things and love you know, to make up for what you're not getting from the father or she's doing that to fulfill her own needs. You know, this, this leads to a lot of problems. Then I think it leads to problems with men forming their own relationships with females and being able to move on. You know, there's a, there's a guy here in Detroit who wrote a book called when you're married to your mother. And I would recommend that if you've got those issues, Ken Adams. Adams. Yes. Ken Adams wrote that. He's right here in Detroit right down the road. Yeah. um, And then I also think that can also develop a real anger toward women later in your life because you felt so responsible for them. If you were enmeshed with your mother and you feel emotionally responsible for her, somewhere in there, you don't want to feel that again with other women. So you have to find a way to separate other women from your mother. Mm. So how do I do that? I sexually objectify women because I'm not going to get aroused to my mom, you know, and I don't want to feel that kind of enmeshment anymore. So then I begin to look at all other women in a different way, in a different category. I'm going to sexualize. Mm. I'm going to treat you like an object. You're here for my pleasure. You're here for my play. Mm. And I don't want to be responsible for you. I just want to use you for my own self-gratification. Rather than be used by you. Absolutely. I'm going to use you before you use me. So lay down. Or pornography. You know, they, they, it, which then just feeds that objectification of women in a totally different way. And this can move into objectifying women because if I'm relating to them this way, then clearly I'm separating from my mother, or at least that's the way it goes in our heads. Uh, that's the way it is in our heads. And also, maybe I don't want to be sexual with women because I wouldn't want to be sexual with my mother. And there are some negative associations. Maybe it feels more comfortable or more arousing to sexually act out with a man or to look at porn featuring men instead. Well, right, because most men just want the sex act. They don't want all that. Uh, it, It doesn't come with all the burden 
the emotional burden. Mm -hmm. I can just go get physical release without emotional burden. Yeah. You know, and sometimes with those men who um, have trouble then even having sex with women because they were with an enmeshed mother, depending on how the degree of the enmeshment, when that boy starts growing into puberty and getting erections, if the mom is still very physical with him, he may have been intimate with her, like sitting on the couch with her arms around him, things that triggered sexual feelings within him. Mm. But then there's that conflict like, ooh, I'm, I'm, you know, my mom's got her arms around me and she's rubbing my arm right now and I, I'm getting an erection. Like, what does that do for your little brain? You know, you start thinking, this is mixing emotions that should not be mixed together. So then, you know, how does that then translate into your own sexual relationship with a female? Mm -hmm. It's too confusing because when I get in that position, I have memories of my mother. And so not only do we carry with us gender role conflict, but also sexual conflict. I don't think you can separate that out. Anytime you have gender role conflict, I think somewhere within there, there's going to be some degree of sexual information that comes into play too, because either you start to doubt yourself as a man, you feel like you have to become hyper-masculine to prove your masculinity. You know, I I don't know that you can, we are very intricate human beings. I mean, our brains are so, it's a mix of wires in there and it's not just specific. It's not a highway path. (laughs) So all of us carry conflict within us into adulthood that affects our experience of masculinity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Doug, how do you define true masculinity? Well, I would go to two different theories. One is um, ACT therapy, which is acceptance and commitment therapy, where that type of therapy really helps you examine your own value system. You know, and I kind of use this example prior, like, what do you want people to say about you when you're 80? You know, I do this all the time with my clients. I will make them write out, what do you want people to say at your 80th birthday party? Or what do you want your eulogy to say when you're dead? Because that's how you're going to arrive at what are my core values? The other theory that I really like is internal family systems, the IFS model, where they talk about the core self. And they have what's called the eight C's, mm-hmm. you know, your core self. And those eight C's are clarity, connectedness, confidence, curiosity, compassion, creativity, calmness, and courage. To me, that's the human condition. I'm not living for a gender condition. I'm living for a human condition. Yeah. And those eight C's are a great description of the image of God. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as a Christian man, I want my masculinity to emulate the fruits of the spirit and Christ. And none of those are, you know, being strong enough to beat the crap out of your neighbor. It's about compassion and connectedness and and all these things. Traditional masculinity tend to push us away from. So maybe another way of saying it would be true masculinity looks like Jesus. Well, definitely. Absolutely. Jesus was never seen as gender variant. 
or fluid. And I don't think we have to be viewed that way either. If we can come to a full acceptance of the fruits of the spirit, come to a full acceptance of who we are in Christ and what our values are. I mean, if I feel like if I'm going to live in a Christ-like way, my value system has to be Christ-like or I'm living an incongruent life. The Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. I also have a degree in theology, which you probably don't know. (laughs) Well, now I know. Now you know. So (laughs) That verse about double-mindedness takes on a new meaning in light of what we've talked about today. Yeah. This is the part where I wanted to ask you uh, what message you would like to share uh, with anyone who doesn't feel like a doesn't feel very masculine. Yeah. If if you're someone who's struggling with your own sense of masculinity, I would almost tell you to just not even use that word and lay that word aside and go back to what I said about who do you want to be? What are your values? What do those eight C's look like in your own life? You're masculine because of sex, because of your genitalia, not by the way you act. You're a human being with a human condition. You are masculine because you have a penis, but you need to learn to be a person, your human condition, the person that you want to be. And then when you decide who you want to be and who you feel good being, even if you're a florist or a baker or some non-traditional role, you figure out how to live congruently with yourself and your spirituality and then pick up that label of masculinity and you can stamp it on your forehead. I love that. This is a masculine moment, Doug. (laughs) I'm going to... Those are my thoughts about the topic. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is so helpful and it's cutting through so much of the noise we hear inside the church, outside the church about this topic. This has been so helpful, and we have more coming up for all of you who are in our private group. Doug is a member of that group. You're actively contributing and connecting with guys, and we're practicing these things, naming our emotions, processing childhood experiences, pursuing intimacy with each other, and Doug has agreed to do a Facebook Live Q&A for us so that you can bring all your questions, and Doug will teach just like he teaches his college classes. (laughs) Oh, I look forward to that. Awesome. Doug, what's your favorite thing about freedom from porn? Um, Off the top of my head, the freedom of it is that, you know, when when I was actively watching porn, it just made me sexualize so many things. You know, people that I looked at, thoughts that I didn't even want to have about those people, you know, and it's nice not being involved with porn that you can just walk around and connect with people on a human level, not a sexual level. Yes. You know, and staying away from porn just changes your mindset. And, you know, we, we could do a whole episode on porn industry and what it tells males about their body and how they're supposed to act and be. And even um, there's lots of studies about, romance novels and how men are described in there. And, you know, staying away from that helps you feel more masculine Mm. too, because sorry, I'm not a stallion. I I don't look like Tony Atlas. I'm not bulging with muscles. I I don't look anything like those guys in those videos, but yet Mm. those videos 
tell you that's what you're supposed to look like. That's how you're supposed to. I mean, I could even because I've done a lot of research in this area, I could even go through with you the standards that you have to have to be hired to be a porn actor. 95% or more of guys don't even fit that mold. So that just rips and tears apart any sense of masculinity that you have because it constantly tells you you're less than, you're less than, you're less than, you're less than. The girl that you sleep with doesn't act like that. She doesn't scream like that. She doesn't orgasm like that. What's wrong with you? You know, and to be able to stay away from that and to recognize what is true masculinity, going back to that human condition. Human so condition. That, that's how I would answer that. <laughs> the image of God, uh, Christ-likeness. Yes. And, and ultimately, um, our status as beloved sons of the Most High King. Yes. Doug, thank you so much for being on the show today. You're welcome. My pleasure. And to everyone else out there, you are God's beloved son. In you, he is well pleased. Porn will tell you otherwise, but husband material will always tell you who you truly are and whose you are. And that's an identity that we share and that we're continuing to live our lives and align with. So that when we die, when our eulogy is said, people will say about us what really aligns with our true values.